One day I was driving into work and I saw somebody was building a block of flats. And that guy, he was a guy called John Kenny. It was a case of right place at the right time. 4 a.m. in Annabelle's when he was Paul Bashir, you'll do anything to get out. Paul Watson, Tony Allen, Soraya Cominello, Sarah Canning, look around, Gina McMorrin, Tom Banning, Christian Davies, <laughs> go on, Scott Blakeway, uh, Tom Ricks. I, I was a bit lost. I knew I didn't want to do that, but I had no idea what I did want to do. A big turning point in my life, maybe go, goes back to my father, who's in the Royal Navy, who, who was suddenly lost very young. I always did feel like giving up on something. And I don't know that I'd really given up on anything before that point. The, the, the woman lifts her, lifts her head up and goes, oh my God, it's a hitchhiker. And, um, and she's listening to my mixtape. So I'm trading my mixtape here for travel. You've left university, you're at Portland's earning 50 pounds a week. And, you know, standing on stage as an entertainer. Like, it was all a bit weird that people were coming over asking for autographs. This is, this is wild. The next thing you're on stage with 2,000 people in front of you warming up for Little and Large. In a bizarre series of events, found myself at Turin Airport at half past 10 at night at 20 years old. What's going to be your next big change? I, I don't feel like I'm done yet. Maybe, just a bit, a bit restless. Watch this space, Gareth. Hi Brian, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast this morning. Um, first question we always ask, what is the hardest change that you've been through in your life? Uh, that's a difficult question. So, so many, so many choices. I think, um, I think what I would, what I'd do is go back right to the beginning here. And this is, this is really about when I was at university and, uh, and, and just to set the context a bit, I grew up in a very, uh, working class family. My my granddad was one of seven pitmen from Chopwell, which is a uh, little Moscow, which is um it, it, it was the last place in there, uh, still on strike at the end of the of the great strike of the of the coal miners, uh, and and so I was pretty much the first person in my immediate family to go to university, and so at, at that point I went off to university in Newcastle, um and uh, and did it or signed up for a degree in pure computing science, which was a subject I had. Very little interest in, uh, but people at the time were saying, go into computers, there's loads of money in computers. So um, so off I went and, and, and trundled, trundled along to my degree in computing science. Um, but I think I found out very quickly that I was hopelessly out of my depth and and really didn't enjoy what was going on. And whilst academically I could keep up, um, the passion for it just wasn't there. So when you get to the end of your uh, semester exams and you, um, you want to go down the student union and have a few pints and... And all your peers want to play network doom until two o'clock in the morning. Uh, you, you kind of realize you're not in the right, maybe not in the right place. So, so I took the decision to drop out of university. Um, and again, having been the first person in the family to go to university and having been a, a, a very high achiever all the way through school academically, um, that was a difficult decision to take. And I, I was running away from something, not to something. It was more that. I, I was a bit lost. I knew I didn't want to do that, but I had no idea what I did want to do. So, so that was a that was a, um, a big turning point in my life. And had I maybe maybe been more of a traditional thinker and taken more of a long term view at the time, I might have been coding in C plus plus merrily uh, now um, in in some basement somewhere. Um, but for for whatever reason, that wasn't me, and I felt the call of the wild, and maybe maybe go goes back to my father who's in the Royal Navy who, who, who I suddenly lost very young but um he he'd seen the whole world by the time he was 21 and by the time I was 21 I'd, I'd 
I'd been at University of Newcastle and not really moved that far away apart from a small stint in Canada on a summer camp. So yeah, so felt felt the call of the wild, and then and then it was a bit lost. But be, because I had some time on my hands, I, I piggybacked on a friend's skiing holiday and and went off to northern Italy, um, and in a bizarre series of events, found myself at at Turin Airport at half past ten at night, at twenty years old, with my skiing gear and um, and no no meaningful way of getting to the ski resort I was heading for from Turin Airport, um. And uh, I managed to hitch a ride with somebody who had a holiday rep uniform on. And this is a lady who worked for Crystal Holidays. And I, I, I'd seen on a map that she was, when she told me she was working in Chamonix, I've had a beer with her at the airport. She's gone, I've said, where are you working? She said, Chamonix. I, at this point, knew that Chamonix was was uh, the place I wanted to go to. It was on the way to Chamonix. And it was at One Valley. So uh, so by the end of this conversation, I've hitched a ride with this uh, this lady. And we're driving up the um the the Aosta Valley in the direction of uh, of La Tuila and Chamonix, and um and she's listening to my mixtape, so I'm trading my mixtape here. If people remember those. I'm trading my mixtape for uh, for travel, and uh, and we got to I'd said to drop me off at the junction to my resort, which effectively is in the Aosta Valley, and I'll hitchhike from uh, with the traditional thumb out from the the um the main road to my resort, and when we got to the the, the junction in a blizzard uh, in minus five and uh, almost no visibility. She took pity on me and drove me all the way up to my resort. So, so in that conversation, she was saying, um, why didn't you, she, she had my life story by this point. And she's saying, well, listen, why don't you just stay in the van with me, come to Chamonix, I'll give you a job. And, uh, and, oh God, it was tempting because I had no, direction I was listless I was wandering around and I was just thinking what, what do I do with my life um but you know I'd arranged to see my friends and I thought my mum is going to lose her absolute mind if I turn up uh, if I just phone up and say by the way I'm in France now I know I went to Italy for a week I'm in France for three months Um, I thought there's no way I get away with that so so I, so I took the easy way out and went to took to thank her for the ride and uh, I said I'll call next year and I'll come and I'll do a ski season and she said, yeah, yeah, people always say that and they never do. Um, and that sort of rung in my ears a bit. So so I went to the ski resort, well, that wheel in, in it the other way of a time, amazing holiday with some friends, and um, and saw what the holiday reps did. And I thought, right, this looks, so you go skiing every day, you drink every night, uh, you party every night. Like this is this has got this has got me written all over it because I knew I liked drinking, I knew I liked partying, I knew I liked skiing at this point. That was probably kind of my first week. Um, and so, so yes, I thought, right, that's what I want to do. So I got back home. I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and be a ski rep in a ski resort, which is an arguably short-term um, life life goal. But I think I'd always had that short-term sort of view on life. Maybe, maybe again, losing my father at a young age, I thought a bit a bit of life's too short uh, mindset was, was probably where I was. So I wasn't thinking long-term at all. Um, and so, so the next year I went to apply for ski jobs. Unfortunately, I was a year too young to apply for ski jobs. Um, and everybody just bounced me out of the, the process of straight away. It was computer says, no, you're too young. Um, and, uh, and so I, I found myself at Butlins in, uh, in, um, in Skegness as a, as, as a red coat. So, so I guess there's, there's a, there's a, there's a common feature of my life being battered from place to place without any significant design, certainly in my early years. But I still had that sense of that gnawing sense of I'm not quite sure what I'm meant to do or where I'm meant to be or or, or um 
I just want something more and I don't want to commit to anything long term. So, so yeah, so that, that took us in, into, into an adventure as a, as a Butlins Redco, which I, when I went into it, had no idea what, what that would entail, having never been to a Butlins before. Um, and next thing you're on stage with 2,000 people in front of you warming up for little and large. And you said um, that your mum wouldn't, uh, she would have been a bit shocked if you'd decided to stay there for three months. What did not just your mum, but people around you think of your decision to leave university? And I asked the question because I had a similar opportunity. When I was at university, I went, I was doing a sandwich degree. So, and I went and worked in the local hotel because that's where I had my part-time job. So I did a year in industry and hospitality and they wanted me to stay. And I, and I was toying with dropping out of university and doing that job. But then, and and I expected my mother and father to say, no, stay at university. You need to get your degree. Actually, they said the opposite. They said, just do what you want. And I wonder what people said around you when you were making that decision to to leave university. Well, I think tracing back, I think I think I look, I think I was so unhappy uh, and just hated doing and going into university every day. And at the time I had three part-time jobs. I was I was lifeguarding, I was working in a in a shop, and I was working in a in a nightclub in Newcastle behind the bar. And I um and I loved doing all of those things. And I loved them so much more than what I was doing at university. Um and I think I, I never listen, I I I had never knowingly failed at anything in my life, right? I was I was very high achiever academically. Um and uh, dropping out of university, uh, dropping out of anything, indeed, wasn't how I saw myself. wasn't my wasn't my how my narrative, how my life at that time was working out. Um, it seemed logical to to do all of the things that I did, and I'd always been right at the forefront to 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 admit failure, uh, admit defeat, or choose a different path at that point, which is which I would how I would characterize it today. But at the time, I was it did feel like giving up on something. And I don't know that I'd really given up on anything before that point. And I didn't see myself as a sort of person who gave up on things. So I, so I think looking back now in, in hindsight, some 20 plus years later, um, uh, it was uh, the right decision for me at the time. But it was, um, yeah, people people around me were, were I think, shocked because, um, you know, the sort of golden, golden child who, who'd done all these amazing things suddenly it turned into dropping out of university and and my grandparents just could you know blew their minds um people of the of the, the older generation to my mums were, were just like absolutely flabbergasted you've left university you're at Portland's earning 50 pounds a week and you know standing on stage as an entertainer and 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 doing all these like weird things but you're still getting 50 pounds a week you might get food and accommodation but you know it's not great is it so what did you do next um well, the, the Butlins thing was 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 really interesting because I I had a I'd spent a little bit of time on stage at school and sort of bits bits and pieces as as, as some people do, but um, Butlins uh, because I didn't know what to expect and because I didn't know anybody who'd ever been to Butlins and I didn't frankly have many other things going on that particular summer. I thought, right, I'll give this a go, and I literally turned up for for um with a sleeping bag intending to spend a day there or a couple of days see what it was like assumed I would hate it and just just bail out and actually I got there and I thought you know this could be a bit of a laugh 
um, I don't know anybody who's ever been to Butlins, so it doesn't really matter to me what the people in front of me think. I don't have any. So it might not. It's probably not going to follow me home because I don't know anybody who's been here. And and when we were sort of being orient, having our orientation as a red coat, um, you, you kind of people were showing you around, saying, right, you'll go in this venue and you'll be on stage and you'll be warming up the crowd for um, the Brotherhood of Man or Bookspheres or whoever was on stage at the time. And then you you might go into this uh, snooker room with a big audience and you'll commentate on the snooker and Stephen Henry or somebody like that will be there doing the snooker or or we'll do this big inflatable it's a knockout style thing and thousands of people will participate and you'll be in the front with a microphone coordinating the whole thing. And I thought this is this is wild. This is this is hysterical and 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 when I when I got there and when I sort of started interacting with the staff and such like it was all a bit weird. Uh, people were coming over asking for autographs and and people didn't have camera phones in those days so people would have disposable cameras and want their photo taken with you as a red coat and then you go in the gift shop and they'd have photographs of you for sale and people could buy a photograph of you and then people would follow you around as you were out there in your red coat and you'd have to sign sign autographs and sign photographs of yourself my mum still got a key ring with my my me as a red coat on it and it's so it was a very very surreal universe uh within the fence there at, at butlins if you hadn't ever been to a butler's before like me it was completely new to me and um and what and on reflection it taught me a huge amount because it, what it taught me was to be confident in front of a group of people um a lot of our work was also about one-on-one and, and interacting with people and families and generally the job was make people ha- make sure people have a good time and I kind of took that with me so so um the 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 next stage of this uh, I've had butlers applying for jobs as a ski rep because I'm now old enough and the and the next thing I find myself having being in being interviewed at Crystal Holiday's headquarters in Surbiton, I think it was at the time, and um, and I walked into the room and lo and behold, in front of me, the 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 woman lifts her, lifts her head up and goes, "Oh my God, it's a hitchhiker!" Um, and and so uh, I'd gone through the normal process, all the normal channels. I hadn't I didn't have a number. I hadn't called her. I just turned up and it let, lo and behold, here I was, and. And so off we went on on a training course. I got the job, and then went off on the training course, and 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 it became apparent on the training course that in in a holiday rep training course overseas, lots of big characters there. Everybody's quite kind of comfortable in their own skin. Everybody's partying all the time, learning the skills associated with at this point being a ski rep. So learning how to ski to do first aid, not learning how to ski, learning how to ski guide, doing first aid. Um, organizing up ski excursions, doing health and safety forms, all the all the good stuff that you would have done at the time to to be a to be a ski rep. And and next thing, I find myself in in northern Italy, um, and uh, and I ended up in a place called Cormier, which is still one of my favorite places, an amazing ski resort. Oddly enough, next door to Latuil, where I was in the uh, in the previous adventure, and um, and what became apparent to me when I when I got to resort is my uh my approach my my vision for it was very different to what had gone before so um it was it was all quite uh let's say a little bit pedestrian at the time when i got there and previous years had been reasonably reasonably so um but when i turned up it was all right let's do a pub crawl let's do a quiz night because i was early 20 late late uh, early 20s i guess and and just just again wanted to party and ski so what what else would i do but party and ski but here um, overseas ops like that was a highly entrepreneurial environment. So you, you were encouraged to set up entertainment for the um, for the holiday makers and 
And frankly, who who is better placed to do that than somebody who who just come out of a whole se- summer season of just doing entertainment? So, so it's set up all these things, and we do a big quiz nights, and we do all these things. And actually, what was a real surprise to me at the end of the first week was when I was earning commission on these activities that we'd set up, and I was just doing them for fun, and I had no idea that and to make holiday makers have a good time. I had no idea you also got paid, um, until the end of the week. So, so that was all quite good fun. And then, so I had a great season doing that, um. And uh, and I remember the, the the senior rep when I got there, she was just saying, "Listen, you do all the ski guiding and the uh, apres ski entertainment and all that thing. I'll do the accounts and the complaints and book the airport transfers and things." And I thought, "Whoa, hang on a second here." So I don't do any of the admin work. I just do the partying stuff uh, and and the fun stuff, and and you just do the admin. And she she's like, "Yep, sounds good to me." I was like, "Right, two thumbs up for that." <laughs> and piled into this amazing season and then next thing uh, and the, yeah and next thing people are and I'm thinking right Ibiza for the summer let's go all in club 1830 job offer on the table and um and my boss at the time at Crystal was like no no stay in Italy come to Lake Garda do the summer here and um it'll be great and amazing and uh, and instead of being in Club 1830 in, in Magalu for Ibiza, I ended up in Limoni on Lake Garda with the pre- predominantly over 50s holiday <laughs> makers. It was a very different. So my life could have taken a distinct turn in a different direction there and didn't and actually got a lot more grown up. And um, and then fast forward a few years and and I guess when I was holiday repping, it was it was a great time to do it. Um, we were all having amazing fun. Holiday makers were, were a lot of fun. Uh, made loads of you know great friends and loads of great experiences and I did what nearly probably six winter seasons six summer seasons something like that in in northern Italy and by the end you kind of I think what I think what what that was really foundational for me in my career in my journey because what you do in in uh, holiday ops like that and seasonal holiday ops is you um you do a winter season and a summer season and you move and you move every six months and what to me that meant, and, and I, I was quite disciplined in managing myself at some level, and what it meant is I could reinvent myself every six months. So, so and it was a complete reinvention, new apartment, um, new people around you, new staff, new job, in my case, quite often being promoted, um, and very little legacy. So you could cut off what had gone before and start with, start with so learn from mistakes you've made before and, 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 and push forward with what you think was, was best for the future. So, so in those six years, I got to live 12 years worth, you know, six, six years of two seasons each. I got to live 12 years worth of life in inverted commas or startups, but actually it's way more than that. When you think it's a completely new environment, completely new everything. So it's, it's not just years. It's like careers changing from every one thing to another. So I moved from being a ski rep to a head rep to a resort manager to a, an area manager to the point where I was involved with commercial negotiations and contracts with hotels to the point where I was running airports on behalf of large tour operators and went to a lot of M&A as Crystal was bought by Thompson, was bought by TUI, um, running training courses and having a couple of hundred staff at some points, um, operating multiple hotels, chalets and all sorts of other things. So you get these, you get that you get career progression like nothing, nothing on nothing I've ever seen before in this industry or you did. Now, unfortunately, that's all dead to British people because of Brexit. So that's not an option for my kids. But at that time, it was an amazing opportunity for me to, on reflection, um, sharpen the knife and uh, adjust my approach 
all of the time every season and there's some there's hundreds of you know adventures adventures and good stories and bad stories and points where i've done something completely wrong and point points i've had real success and and light and shade in that um but what it did is it it gave me that foundation i still look back at those days now in stuff i do in my career today and think okay the the, the foundations that i built there are 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 really strong and the two two of the main things that it taught me were First of all, the commercial thing, you were effectively running your own business when people holidaymakers got to resort at the time. So you would organize your own at-risk program, you would work out your cost price, you'd work out your sales price, you'd you'd look at the difference, and then you'd, you know, all that's all that stuff you'd set it up yourself. So very good quality, basic commercial stuff. Um, but but the main thing that everybody was interested in from a head office perspective was not so much how much money you were making on 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 each excursion or anything else. It was are people having a great time? Will they come back and boot up the following year? So you have questionnaires or custom service questionnaires going out as well as these, these activities. And as long as the, you know, if the questionnaires were coming in positively, everybody was happy. And so that would be my my big thing for taking 250 people on a pub crawl in Saudi Do, which is the sort of thing we would do, then all my reps would be there and everybody's job would be to make sure everybody had a good time. And if somebody didn't look like they're having a good time, would be out over there and um, helping them to have a good time. So so, so the, the the foundations that I built there, I think have have um, uh, have powered the rest of my journey, and and indeed that some of the things that I would draw out as well from that period that that I think have uh, that people might find interesting are, um, for example, you know, Microsoft Excel was 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 a very very in its infancy at the time, but it seemed like a useful tool, and. And when I was traveling around as an area manager, I would I'd bought a book about Microsoft Excel. So in my hotel rooms at nights, sometimes instead of going to the pub or something, I would be in there with my book on Excel, firing through it. Um, I've always been a, uh, I've always been a, an avid reader, and I think and and on nonfiction and um, and personal development. And that's kind of been my superpower in many respects. So I would take the book, I would read the book, I would implement the book, and in that microcosm of um, my roles overseas, I'd get the chance to to put all of those things into practice, especially around leadership, especially around interacting with individuals, especially around management, sales, marketing, administration, Excel, pivot tables, everything else. Um, so I was I would spend my time learning while I was doing that. And and that that kind of gave me a great grounding for for when I did eventually move back to the UK, which is in the, in the early noughties. And say so you talk so well, so warmly about that time. It must have been a great experience, and and taught you a lot. Um, so, why did you why did you not stay and and do that? Well, so I mean that's a that's that's an interesting one. So I got to, I got to my early mid twenties. Um, I'm in Italy. I'm probably one of the most senior British people over in Northern Italy for my company. Um, and everybody else around me at this point is is quite a lot older than me, and um, you know, married to locals and and have their own lives in Italy. But I'm still half, you know, still a lot younger and still living a reasonably young life. Um, uh, and people in the UK are sort of uh, getting on with their lives, and my life feels like it's not moved on in six years, even though I've career wise moved on. I'm still moving house every six months in an apartment. I still don't own a telly. I'm, you know, I could go, there's just loads of things that just didn't seem 100% right. 
and at this point obviously about six years of abusing my body and uh, drinking drinking uh, drinking a, a lot of uh, bodily nocchiaretto and and um and eating a lot of pasta and pizza so i'm probably two stone overweight now and it's 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 looking inside it's getting worse uh, and a friend of mine who was on a different work for a different operator had moved back to the uk about six months earlier and and he said right he said he said, if you come back to the UK, it's health clubs. Health clubs is the game. He says, we're both too fat. Um, he said, I've come back to the UK. I've got a job as a general manager in a health club. And this health club industry thing's really getting going. So that's your chance. So I came back to the UK, um, bought myself a suit and and printed out some copies of my CV and, and got myself a ticket to Leisure Industry Week in Birmingham. And I... And I uh, and I spent a day there just walking around different um, stands uh, saying, oh, what do you do? And they're like, we own, we're a chain of health clubs, we're David Lloyd Leisure or we're Fitness First or whoever, handing out CVs and trying to, trying to have conversations with people. And I knew I didn't have any experience in health and fitness. Uh, I knew I didn't have any or health, running health clubs. But I thought my transferable skills are, are really good here. I've been involved in supervising multiple hotels and chalets and everything else. It can't be that difficult. And, uh, well, it can't be that different, sorry. I knew it would be difficult. Um, and uh, But I thought, I've got one sort of um, thing in my back pocket here. I said, I'll go anywhere. And that was my kind of thing. I said, Listen, just send me anywhere. I'll go and do and do this. So um, so I got to the Fitness First stand and, uh, and I was handing my CV in and I happened to be a, a regional manager there. And they were in rapid expansion mode. They were building them like crazy at the time. <clears throat> and... Uh, and um, I got on chatting with a guy. He was he was you know going going for my story, and he seemed quite happy with it. And they were recruiting people from all sorts of backgrounds because they were expanding so quickly. And um, he said, "Right, he said, I've got a club opening in East Kilbride in three months. Um, if you want it, it's yours." And I and my response was, "Not a word of a lie." I've, well, that sounds great. I've always wanted to go to Wales. <laughs> he said, East Kilbride is next to Glasgow in Scotland. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, that, that's what I meant. So um, so about six weeks later, I find myself in East Kilbride on the outskirts of an industrial estate um, launching this student this um, student accommodation, that's a rather a bit of a slip, launching this uh, this health club into the East Kilbride market. Um, in, in, in fairness, quite a sketchy location on the outskirts of an industrial estate, no, no buses, and East Kilbride at the time had the lowest per capita car ownership in the UK, I think it was it wasn't a particularly um, affluent area. So so next thing I'm interviewing studio instructors and doing all these things that I'm at that point in time had very little understanding of. Um, but we built a team and we started selling memberships and 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 it was tough. It was an uphill struggle selling memberships in that area. And we were we launched on about the same day as one launched in central Manchester. So when they've got four thousand members, we've got 500 and it was not it was not my uh not my greatest day um so so i went through that and then got headhunted to go to david lloyd's um so as a general manager there, i went to a sort of assistant role at david lloyd's which is a much bigger uh, organization people will be familiar with with that as a big rackets club and then did some had a lot of fun there and learned a lot and again i think i think an ongoing theme of my life has been this transferable skills point and that the, the transferable skills willingness to learn and reading as a superpower are two or three kind of big themes in my life. Um, because I thought, well, what was I doing overseas? Sales and marketing, um, operations, health and safety, facilities management, hospitality, all, all that good stuff. Well, same for health clubs, but a different kind of 
product, if you will. So instead of um, uh, ski resort, instead of summer resort and tours and bar crawls, you're doing health clubs and gym memberships and and F&B offerings and rackets in David Lloyd's case. So I did Glasgow and got transferred to Teesside, which was a, a club at that point. I moved back to the northeast and um, was was commuting to Teesside. And then I was headhunted again for uh, for what what would be the last, uh, what I thought would be one of the last big health club openings in Newcastle, which is a recurring theme as my home home sort of area. Um, so I, I went over and did a full pre-launch and launch of a health club in Newcastle. And um, and that was yes, yeah, so that was that was quite an exciting phase of my life. The the health health club journey, which which lasted for about four years on in all. It sounds like um, if there's one thing people listening, well, perhaps I take from this, maybe other people take something different. But you seem to always be looking for the next opportunity and going to find it. Would that be fair to say? Uh, yeah yeah maybe maybe just a bit a bit restless uh and and so and so it's 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 when you look back at my cv it's kind of it, it is very jumpy at the beginning and i got to the point where i was thinking hang on a second here the theme is and people might not have always seen this at the time because quite often it was within an organization um but and it was and it was a thing about holiday reps as well we, you'd get what we call an end of season itch and it would get to the point where you're at the end of the ski season and everything's getting a bit, snow's getting a bit worse. It's getting a bit slushy. My, the weather's not maybe as, it's a bit hotter. And you get this end of season itch and all you can do is be ready. You're ready for your next season now. And it was really tough at the end of the season to keep everybody hanging around because psychologically they had this end of season itch. They wanted to be moving on to the next thing. And and I, I would, at the time would say I hadn't, hadn't shaken that. So even when I was in the health club industry, even though I was at David Lloyd's for a few, uh, two, two and a half years, um, I was changing roles every six months and every six months I'd be desperately looking for the next thing. Uh, so that, so that I think I attribute that a little bit to being in the seasonal game at the beginning of my career. Um, but I was definitely looking for the next thing. And so I, I did always have my head up for, for, for what was next, or preparing for what was next. And, and it would be really, and it was so apparent to me that in September, October, and in sort of March, April time, it would happen, like uh, like clockwork. And I would talk to friends who had been in the industry, in the holiday industry as well at the time, and they were like, "Yeah, same same thing." But they would, for whatever reason, they would manage to suppress it better than I could. So even so, then it was so then it became um, it was starting to get a bit ridiculous. I was feeling the need to jump every six months. So I did this this new health club opening in Newcastle. And I thought, right, that's it, definitely. This is me for a while. This is me for a long time. I'll grow within this organization. So, and that's when serendipity took a hold, really. And so, um, so again, I've always been very entrepreneurial, had my eyes open and never stayed, never stayed in my lane at any stage in my career. And um, so one day I was driving into work and I saw somebody was building a block of flats, a block of apartments on 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 my commute to to the, this, uh, this health club I'd opened. So I'd, I'd been watching it for a little while and then seemed to be advancing. Uh, and, and so I, I drove in one day on my way to work and I thought, well, I'll go and try and strike a corporate agreement with the the landlord or the owner of these flats and maybe we'll give the people some discount and they'll use my gym and it'll be a good thing for everyone. And so I wandered in and and, and I, I ran into a guy who who was in there and um, I saw having a conversation with him. He was up from London. He he was he worked for the um, the people who were developing the, the, the residence. Um, 
and sometimes you know sometimes in life you just you just meet somebody and you think you just hit it off immediately so so I was chatting to this guy and and we had a cup of coffee and, and we were chatting and he was telling me his story um which was that he's the CEO of this of this business and they were they were trying to build a few assets a couple of residences simultaneously across the UK he was he was based in London and um, this one in Newcastle they were having a few challenges the the project looked like it might run late um they were having to build a team and all of these all of these things and and that guy he was a guy called John Kenny and he was the chief operating officer of a business called Domain at the time which was backed by the Murfield group and after about half an hour I realized it was a student accommodation block he was building um at which point I lost a bit of interest because they had great facilities at the university and weren't going to be signing up for my club anytime soon. Um, but what, what what did happen is I, I just immediately had amazing chemistry with this with this guy. Um, not in a not in a um, no, 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 you know, work wise we were we were kind of bouncing off, bouncing off each other really well. And I thought, um, and I thought that I'd definitely work with this guy. And, and we ch- we change numbers and stuff. And he's like, I need somebody to come and manage this thing. What do you think? Um, it's a student accommodation business. And I was like, well, you know, I, I do health clubs. It's it's a lot of fun. And there's people jumping around on, you know, steps and, and treadmills and all this stuff. And I've done this for four years. And But actually health clubs was at the time that, that especially with the, with a the launch, it was 16 hours on a Monday, 16 hours on a Tuesday. And it was very, it, you had to be all in for health clubs. And I had other um, ambitions. And I think, given that I'd not passed my first degree, I was thinking, right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to, I want to do an MBA. I'm going to leapfrog degrees and I'm going to do an MBA. Um, and there's no, there's no way the health club thing would let me do that. So just because of the timings and the commitment that was required at the time. And so I thought, you know what, why not roll the dice with, with this guy? At least I'll get over grown up job working nine to fives and weekends off and, and uh, do my MBA part time, which is what I was sort of angling for. And uh, but more than that, I just had this great feeling about this guy and great chemistry. I thought he, he he is a guy I can learn a lot from. He is a guy who's who's got great humility. I, you know, I, I just genuinely felt that I could learn a lot from. Him. I had this great relationship. And I was I, I thought he, he he we can crack on together. And um, and so yeah, and so I joined the student purpose built student accommodation world, um, with my transferable skills, and um, and uh, and ended a maelstrom of pain. Where this resident was being residence was being delivered late. There was no administration had taken place. Nobody knew who was in which rooms. Um, the universities were up in arms. I had a very memorable conversation with the what, somebody in the accommodation department at a university in the northeast who said, "We've sent three hundred and fifty students' names or students over to you. How many of them are booked?" And I understand, Mister Welsh, you've never worked in student accommodation before. Is this true? And that was my second day in the office. And uh, and it bears my response to her was like I you know I understand you get five thousand people arriving every year and you move them into your accommodation. She said yes. I said well, where I come from, you get five thousand people every twice a week moving into one hundred and fifty hotels across northern Italy. Uh, so I think I'll be okay. And and I think so. I wasn't trying to be arrogant. I was trying to give her a bit of comfort in the best nicest possible way. And um, but what I could do then is as a general manager of one of these residences, I could launch it from ground up. So we got involved with the development to try and get that over the line in time for people to move in. Um, it was the worst conceivable set of circumstances. Great Northern weekend in Newcastle means every hotel room is taken up. The building you don't know if you're going to get until 24 hours before they move in. You've got 
695 rooms you're sending and that point in time you didn't have software that would do these things for you no none of your star reses and kinetics and things we were posting snail mailing envelopes across the world with application forms in having them snail mailed back snail mailing asts out to people and then then being snail snail mailed back with four checks attached before we could allocate them a room and then you had to do the room allocation friendship groups everything else so and and with that, I was doing. I was involved in everything. I was painting some rooms. I was cleaning some rooms. I was appointing cleaning contractors. I was uh, appointing all the staff. I had a legion of temps there with laptops tapping away. We were making phone calls. I, I pulled one of my mates in as an accountant to help on moving weekend. I had ten of my other mates in on moving weekend on the promise of free pizzas and 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 you know the the office flooded the underwater set the underground safe flooded with raw sewage on the moving weekend we had quarter of a million pounds in cash in there and you know all this amazing experience let's say and reconciling the accounts the big spread and putting my own spreadsheets in place and 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 you know i basically lived in there for about three months to get the thing finished and the students moved in and then after they moved in of course i'm at that point organizing club nights for the students and getting in because doing my old holiday rep thing and uh and I loved it and it was amazing and it was a great time and it was stressful and it was energetic and it, it, but it, it required me to call on all of my skills that I developed in the previous years to do this. And it gave me a, a grounding in the sector that not many, not many people have had because um, most people haven't started off as a, at the senior level in the business, haven't started off as a manager in, in the space. So that business was Liberty Living, I guess. So that's right. So domain was taken over by Liberty Living, um, and uh, the two businesses were comparable in size at the time. Um, but uh, they approached approached the operations of the business in a sort of different way. So Liberty Living took over domain, and then over time, a lot of the domain sort of systems, processes, and operations that I'd been, I guess, involved in in developing, um, kind of found their way into the Liberty Living business. So, um, so obviously, I've had uh, previous uh, employees of Liberty on on the podcast before, um, and they always talked about it being quite a like a family and a great place to work. And uh, was that the case? Absolutely, yeah. It it was it was great. I mean, I um in my journey at Liberty Living, I started as a, a general manager, as, as we said, and then kind of took over a city mandate and then a, a regional manager role, and then ended up moving to London and 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 sitting in the Gherkin with with John Kenny who I mentioned and, and Charles Marshall who was, the, who was the chief exec uh, and I was the sort of working alongside those guys um on multiple projects across the across the the organization and I learned a huge amount in my time at Liberty Living uh, from John and from the people around us and I think uh, it was it was it was it was a, we felt we were we were doing a lot of pathfinding in the, in the sector and I'm sure a lot of people say that, and and it's it, it has been an, an emerging sector over the past twenty years or so. Um, but at the time, um, when I started, let's say the a lot of the other uh, general managers were people from a military background, and that was a, that was the kind of theme across student accommodation, because who who better to manage a bunch of 17, 18, 19 year olds than somebody who's been a a quartermaster in the in the Royal Artillery or similar, and and is used to dealing with a lot of young people. And some of them would call it, say, they'd march the students in in September, then march them out again in June, and these are the expressions that that were used. And it was it felt a lot about crowd control, 
uh, it, it felt a lot about stopping them damaging your building. And the big focus was the summer clean and getting the business turned around ready for the September. And that was where it all kind of happened. And, uh, and I totally understand where that where where, where that um, mindset sort of came from. But but I approach it from the opposite end of the of the telescope. I've been in customer service forever and entertainment for my whole career. I was used to customer service questionnaires and being nice to people and creating uh, great atmospheres and health clubs and and sort of every customer every time attitude and trying to engineer out any any friction points and. And, uh, and and sales and marketing and all of these things. I wasn't I wasn't a facilities manager. I didn't see myself as that. I I was somebody who was going to create a great experience. And and at some level, that would be the right thing to do. And um, it wasn't it was you know it wasn't always, it might not be a tangible financial benefit of being nice to somebody and making them send them away with a smile on their face. But that was kind of the way I would approach it. Uh and so that's the kind of ethos we we try to 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 instill at Liberty Living and 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 everybody in the business, um, no matter how you know what background they had or, or how long they'd been in the British Army or anything else, kind of came along on that journey. They got it. Like let, it was very much let's create a great place to work. Uh, and so, and we invested a lot in the, in the general managers and the teams, and created I think a a reasonably a re- really strong ethos and value. And created a place that people wanted to come and work. So, so it, there were high expectations. Um, people were high achievers, but I think we we had this shared sense of mission. Uh, we all thought we were doing something that was good and right, and um, and we wanted to do it. The people we recruited, we wanted to do to the best of their ability. And we used to have a, a phrase that we you know we, we recruit somebody for attitude as as well as ability. As previously, if you were an electrician and you could do electrician stuff, then great, you get a job. Now it was actually, um, I can teach you how to, you know, we, we, we've engineered these buildings to such a point where, you know, you don't need to, to be um, super experienced handyman in some cases to be able to maintain one of the bedrooms because they've engineered that. You know, you can pop a panel off to get access to the pipes rather than have to smash out 20 quid's worth of tiles and spend three weeks on it. Um, so we've engineered them to that kind of point. So I can teach people to uh, maintain the building. I can't teach them uh, to change their personality completely. So recruiting people on attitude as well as ability was 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 really important. And I think, and I think um, you know, if you look around Liberty and look around the sector, there's a lot of former Liberty people who are in this, who are still in the sector and are making, making waves and continue to make waves in the space. Um, and so, 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 uh, so my involvement went until uh, 2010, end of 2010, beginning of 2011, um, where I was approached by by a guy I'd known from the sector for many years. I've always been, I guess, quite active in the, in the space. I've always been trying to promote the sector. I've always been involved in the conference and networking, networking space and made a lot of amazing uh, contacts, friends and colleagues in the space. And because I've always had this view that we can move the we can move the PBSA space forwards, and it's in everybody's interest to make it a better, greener place to work, to to deliver better service, to have, um, to have to, you know, especially on health and safety and things like that, and facilities management. If we can share share strategies, resources, and make the buildings as safe as possible, um, I've always been very open about that kind of thing. So that that would lead me to get involved in plenty of networking events and such like. And and so um, a guy who'd fallen off the the the, the networking radar had, had disappeared for a, a few months, called me up one one day in there at the end of twenty ten and said, "Hey, um, 
I'm, I'm starting a student accommodation business. Do you want to join the party? Um, and so, and so very quickly, I went from the 32nd floor of the Gherkin to a basement office in Fitzrovia, um, with a, with a, and yeah, the the and as as I, the day I was due to start, I got a phone call from the chief executive was Bob Crompton, um, and he said you better buy yourself a laptop and a phone while she, uh, because we haven't got an IT department or any of that. So uh, so so I was encouraged buying myself a laptop and a phone, and um, and and found my way my way to the basement office, and there was. There were there was three directors and uh, and and one assistant there at the time and um and that business was Knightsbridge Student Housing. Was that a case of right place at the right time? Well, I had my um then then largely suppressed itch going on um at Liberty Living, but again my time at Liberty Living was perpetuated by changes every every six to twelve months in in role again. Um, so I was, I was, what Liberty Living allowed me to do, and the whole sector in general has, is exercise all my interests, which are myriad. Uh, so I wasn't pigeonholed, and as a general manager, you can do some sales and marketing, you can do some ops, you can do some FM, you can paint a bedroom, you can do all those things. Regional manager was the same, and then my sort of final role there was very similar. The head of strategy role, I was into lots of different things. So, side so project was kind of coming to an end. Uh, so it was the right time for me to find another um, something else to do, and um, but it was a brave decision, I think, to 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 leave you know leave a, leave the Gherkin and a very established business, uh, which most people would recognise was pretty successful, to join a complete startup with you know having been interviewed in a pub um, to to go and spend some time with this bloke in this basement office. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it was it felt like for me it was it was. Just another logical step. I think people in the industry were like, "How how how can you leave the second largest operator in the industry for this for this complete startup, which hadn't really been seen before? The sort of the traditional what we would refer to as a traditional private equity real estate play. People in the sector didn't really hadn't didn't really in general understand that. And um, so for me to roll the dice was was just more because I knew I was going to want to change. This felt like a bit of a fun thing to do, um, and I got over Bob. Uh, we were the only two northerners really in the PBSA space at the time, uh, and so he's like, "Come on, Welsh, how we will come and do this," and uh, and and so that was it. So so I joined Knights for Student Housing in uh, early part of 2011. So and that obviously came the student housing company, and and one thing that you know, again, giving my opinion on the student housing company, that seemed to grow at an incredible pace, and I always, well, I'll ask you the question rather than giving my opinion. Does growing that rapidly make it easier or harder? Um, that's a good question. It depends. I think it depends on 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 who you are and your outlook on life. Um, I think for me, it was pretty natural, uh, and for the people we recruited, I think it was as well. Um, you get used to um, a steady state of instability, if you, if you, if you like, um, and you have to. Uh, what we did is we had we had we had a bunch of different strategies. I think uh, let's let's walk it back first. What was important? I think we had this vision that we're going to be um, Europe's fastest growing PBSA provider, and we hoped that we'd be that. So that was kind of where we would go. But we didn't just want to be that. We wanted to be also the best by any discernible measure. And we recruited people who who would um, had that in their kind of in their DNA. 
So we want to be the best at service. We want to build the best buildings. We want to be the fastest growing one. So, so, so many of these things um, we kind of wanted to do. And, and what we try to do, and we talk about, um, you know, people, people often talk about uh, culture and in businesses and, and kind of culture strategy for breakfast and all those things. And, and I, and I think that's right. And I, th- I don't think you can understate that. So we try to create this culture um, where we were all together, all part of a family, and that was very much led by Bob and 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 um, pushed out to the rest of us as well. Um, that uh, again, a bit like we were at Liberty, and we had this big family thing going on, and it 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 felt it felt very much like that. But we were creating a new one. We had a blank sheet of paper, it had never been really done in that way before, uh, and it was just mega exciting so building your own brand you're building your own website you're doing everything in the way you think about it uh you, you're forgetting what went before you're putting your own systems in place you, you you're striving on you're breaking into ireland for the first time you're breaking into spain you're building in france you, you, you're doing all this amazing stuff all over europe and uh, we had great alignment from the investor who was super supportive and we were very much in a platform style in with a platform style PE investor rather than a real estate investor, which allowed us an amazing amount of flexibility when, for example, we decided we wanted to manage our own assets and created an operating business called the student housing company. But what we but just to, just to rewind slightly, um a feature of uh the holiday industry at the time when I did it with Crystal was if you're the resort manager, that's your business. You run that resort as your business. We'll send you holiday makers. You you make sure they have a great time, um, organize events and things like that for them. That'd be great. And then with um, uh, health clubs, it was very much the same, especially David Lloyd's at the time. It was like, if you're a general manager, go and sign yourself a contract with a local car dealership, give them some advertising space and get yourself a, get yourself a nice car and, 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 and some income if you can. Uh, and then with uh, domain, what we did was we said, uh, "You're the general manager of the residence. You get your own PL control. You can have authorities." And at the time, people, general managers for our competitors, would be able to sign fifty pounds or have a, have a petty cash tin. We gave our general managers a thousand pounds authority because make those students happy all the time, and it's it's not going to make any difference to the overall PL of this twenty five at the time million pound asset. Now probably 120 million pound asset, but um, so so what we did at the student housing company, very my view was let's give those general, let's recruit great general managers, let's pay them a bit more than the than the market might normally pay, let's give them P and L control, let's put checks and balances in place that allow them to be entrepreneurial, make a difference, and deliver great service to their students, and be part of the team, and they can have regular meetings, they can input into the systems and processes we put in place, and they're very heavily involved in forming the business but fundamentally if they can't get me on the phone i was a coo there if they can't get me on the phone or their area manager on the phone or anything else we want them to be equipped to do the right thing with confidence that they're doing the right thing and that they'll have our support and i think a lot of organizations get that wrong the consequences are too bad or they don't in many cases don't trust people into the organization enough and we talked about this uh, we talked at liberty living we would talk about management at every level and the student housing company was very much the same. If if you're the a marketing manager, if you're a systems manager, if you're a, a building residence general manager, um, or an assistant manager, or if you're the head of maintenance in a in a in a, an asset, we wanted everybody to culturally be doing what the business was needing and what was the right thing from the customer's perspective as well. 
having to spend a lot of time instilling that ethos into people and in the recruitment phase and all starts of recruitment, bringing the right people through the business who are who 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 believe in that strategy, who want to be leaders, whether you're a cleaner or whether you're a receptionist or whether you're a general manager, they still want to be a leader and they will take responsibility for their part of the empire. And and to your point there, to your question about rapid expansion, that was the only way you could achieve rap, rapid expansion to my mind by mobilizing and stabilizing. I talk a lot about mobilizing, stabilizing and optimizing as uh, as, as a, my sort of MSO methodology in, in, in operations. But you spend a lot of time mobilizing the residences as when it gets launched, filling it with students. Um, you then need it to, to be uh, stabilized and then you put your guy in there and then that guy could continue and it will just continue being stabilized, optimized. But if you're still having to drag all your head, head office resource back to LinkedIn or you know, Leeds or wherever you might be or Madrid or whatever, you can't get on with your expansion mission if you're being pulled back constantly into the existing pipeline. So, so what we try to do is build it, stabilize it, and then remove your management time from 50% on that to 10% to 5% on that because your local manager is fully on mission and you can trust him or her to to manage that residence. You must have clearly taught the people there that because um, you must be proud to see quite a lot of the alumni of student housing company out there uh, in uh, forging their careers out in the sector. Well, that's that's probably the greatest pleasure I have, and and I know the other senior people I've worked with, uh, Charles or John or Bob, would say the same. That the people we have worked with, and it's been a privilege uh, at every turn to work with these people, have gone on to do amazing things in the in the space. Um, it's nice that some of them have kind of come back and worked with us in different guises at different places. That's also been a, a real pleasure and a, a real treat. Um, but if you look around many organizations in the space now, you will see a lot of those names that were at Liberty or the Student Housing Company, whether it's uh, Paul Watson, Tony Allen, Soraya Cominello, Sarah, Sarah Canning now. Um, look around, Gina McMorrin. There's a, there's a bunch of people out there who have been Tom Banning, Christian Davies, <laughs> go on, Scott Blakeway, uh, Tom Ricks. Yeah, so I'm going to get wrong for whoever I haven't mentioned now. <laughs> you'll see them in every walk of life. And actually, uh, I was at a conference, um, the class conference in Barcelona uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was talking to Chris Holloway, who's another one. Um, and he was saying, you know what, I think there's, there's at least 50 people here, um, probably closer to 100. And most of them have worked for or with us. And and that was just beautiful. And 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 we walk past each other and, you know, there's hugs and beers and everything going around still. And that student housing company journey was 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 just a great example of how to create a culture. Um, a culture for success where people can have fun, do well, if we got paid well. Uh, and, and built some amazing assets and had some some great students in there. And on the customer service side, I mean, you know, we I was very I'm always been very keen on testing and and, and assessing um, uh, how um, your customers are from the the repping days. I guess what are your customers thinking? How do you um, how do you improve? Well, what gap analysis can you do to improve the service to the customers? And we participated in a in a. Uh, the National Student Housing Survey for many years, and at Liberty and at um, the Student Housing Company, I think we, you know, we we were winning that very consistently because we get the the comprehensive data sets from Tim Dublin and his team at the time, 
and we do a very comprehensive gap analysis and we we would find those gaps and we would work relentlessly on them to to continue to improve the service to the customers so great to get awards and trophies for the cabinet but more importantly um, we were at the head of the pack and cons- consistently taking strides forwards at the student housing company in terms of service so if i've done my research well enough brian you went on to nido next um and you yeah. talked at the beginning about how you know every season when you're in the holiday business and everything else you learn from things that went well and things that didn't go so well um did you try and do anything differently when at nido than what you'd done before yeah absolutely so so i mean this the, the student that's quite an interesting transition because the student housing company and knightsbridge we sold oh, it was part of a closed end fund so it's it's um backed by Upshire capital management the, the the so it got to the point where everything had to go so at knightsbridge everything had to be sold um including every last pen every office lease every every uh every chair every you know everything had to go so we, we sold the a bunch of portfolios in different trans transactions to different investors. I mean, including we sold the student housing company to to Nick Porter and the GSA business, um, which are now being rebranded to Hugo actually. So it's still it, it's it's no longer there as the student housing company. It's but it is still there, and um, and that was a sad. I mean, there were literally not a dry eye in the house when we were doing that. When we realised that we, we the directors could no longer be part of the journey going forwards uh, for. We had, we had to stay and you know sell down the last of the business and then got in a very weird sort of um firing squad situation where we had to make each other redundant one by one and and uh, and then all all sort of go to the pub so it was all, so it was a great it was it was a great kind of circular journey where the people who were there at the beginning were kind of there at the end and 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 uh, and we down tools in that sort of way and um, but totally before the final knockings of that I'd been um, cornered at a conference by a guy called Paul Bashir, who who was at Roundhill Capital at the time. He's now the chief executive of Harrison Street Europe, um, and and he was another Geordie in the sector, actually. So oddly enough, um, he he cornered me. We met before, and he was like, "Right, you've got to come to Nido and be the chief executive of Nido and do the Nido thing and help us with the student uh, business at Roundhill Capital." And so, I've, so uh, you know. It's one of those, and I've told the story to a few people. By four AM in Annabelle's, when you're with Paul Bashir, you'll do anything to get out um, in one piece. And so, um, so uh, next thing, I was the chief executive Nido. So I had a few months off, and then joined Nido as as, as uh, number one. And, and Nido had a had a great business, had a great reputation. It had it was a it was a well known, almost luxury student accommodation operator from its legacy as uh, taking as only controlling three central London buildings. And Nido had built a great business mm-hmm. and um it had some great people in there and Dan Smith, who, who's still very active in the market, was 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 there as well. Um but the brand had had gone from having the central London buildings to having um uh different sorts of buildings around the UK um of uh, of different styles, some townhouses, some apartments, but certainly not all not all five-star quality, it was more mid-market. So so I guess. I had the chance to come into Nido, uh, into the existing business. Um, the intention was always to grow it as as rapidly as we could, as as far as we could. Um, it works with different, multiple different capital partners, have multiple different strategies. Um, and but what we did have is 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 uh, the 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 owner of Nido was was very passionate about the customer service, about the branding, about the marketing, about what we were doing with with Nido. 
Um, and so I got a chance to go and have a look at that business for a while, which I which I hadn't really enjoyed in the uh, enjoyed that luxury in the past, if you will. And and I was in a position quite quickly to make a difference on some things just because I'd lived this life uh, for a lot longer than some of the Nido team had. And so we embarked on a on a rebranding exercise to to bring them bring the brand to in, in something which could be more wide reaching. Uh, we focused double down on the student uh, on the student uh, aspect of it and the service and. Um, and working with the team, we came up with 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 um, some real key brand values, which which I think resonated well with the Nido and the community and and uh, and indeed the wider sector. And I think we were Nido was quite very brand led, so I think we were probably quite front ended in in the branding stuff. And we started talking a lot about sustainability, about building communities, about well being, about technology, about design. Um, and then we kind of they became the kind of legs of the stool of the Nido brand, if you will. And we tried to frame everything that we did go on a go forward basis through those um through those lenses which not only gave us a great way of talking about stuff but also gave us the um uh i think it just just gave us the ability to imprint imprint something on our dna and and so and, and that business you know during the time i was there went from sort of two thousand beds um to a pipeline about fifteen thousand beds we went from just in the uk to Portugal, Spain, Denmark, Ireland, um, the Netherlands, Germany, and a few other places. So, so we got in a rapid expansion mode again. Brought a lot of new people in, a lot of old faces. In fairness, from the student housing company came and joined the party at Nido. Um, and yeah, le- learned a lot of stuff. That was my first real chief exec role, um, formal chief exec role. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I think we did some great stuff and we did a lot of uh, forward facing, out, outward market facing stuff, which we hadn't done as much of maybe at the student housing company. Um, and it, yeah, we had, a, we had, a, we had a, a, a great experience and worked with some great people. So um, you were kindly recommended to come on the podcast by uh, by Richard Stott. Um, I won't do an impression of Richard, but the reason he recommended you to come on was he said, we all want to know what he's doing. What are you doing now? Um. Well, listen. Um. I've got uh, so so. Uh, I've been around the market for well since two thousand five, right? So I've been eighteen years in the purpose-built student accommodation space, and I've made so many great friends and relationships and contract contacts. And I was in Boston a couple of weeks ago, as I said, and and it was just like with a group of friends. It was just lovely and we all spent some great time together and it was enjoyable so in those sort of conversations a lot of people have kind of picked up the phone to me and said hey what you're doing will you come and help out um so i'm helping a few people out with a few different projects really uh, i set up a small uh, business called opry solutions limited which nobody can pronounce or work out what it is but it's operational real estate solutions um and that allows me to a, a bit of freedom to help people out on a on sort of short-term basis or for a couple of days a week here and there or I've got a, a, a ned position I've got a trustee position uh, and I think I would say I'm kind of I'm enjoying helping people in and around the market at the moment to think about what they're up to um to identify some of the best people who might they might want to join their teams to help identify market opportunities where they should be spending their time um, in some cases, to sit on an investment committee to give opinions about a, an asset, um, to think about debt strategies, whatever it is. I think, I think people have been very 
um, uh, gracious in 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 wanting to spend time with me and just say, hey, um, can you give us some advice on this? And we we find it really valuable if you can do some mentoring of these people in the team. Um, a, a lot of those kind of things. So I'm getting to. Uh, it's a little bit choose your own adventure, um, and it's a little bit of a little bit of fun and I'm enjoying every conversation I have because I'm just spending time with great people who I really like um, without having any of the executive sort of stress that you get with um, with, uh, with with being a full-time executive and taking the, the world on your shoulders. So so at this moment, that's a lot of fun. And um, is that what I'll do forever? Who, who knows? I think what, what am I focused on? What am I interested in the moment? I think chemistry is really important and and wanting to spend my time with people I want to spend my time with. That hasn't always been a luxury I've been able to enjoy in my career. Um, but I th- but I think it's important. And so yeah, what, what do I want to do? I like that I like to continue adding value, use the skills that I've got. Uh, I'm a little bit passionate about sustainability and doing the right thing as 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 organizations and corporately. Um, ranting on Twitter a bit about politics uh, is always entertaining. Um, following Newcastle United uh, in their quest for Champions League glory, um, uh, yeah, and so so I don't think that's changed, but I feel like, um, yeah, I, I don't feel like I'm done yet, uh, and I'm yeah, you know, what am I, forty seven now, um, so I've probably got another roll of the dice or two, uh, but at the minute I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, so um, happy to happy to continue. Well, I couldn't have you on the podcast without uh, picking your brains about the PBSA sector. So um, how would you describe the health of the sector right now? Well, the fundamentals of the sector have never been stronger, right? So there are more students than ever before. The student-to-bed ratio is is in most cities incredibly high. Um, if anything, we need to build more and more quickly to help more students access accommodation. And, and in fairness to... to to keep a handle on the pricing because we're seeing incredible price increases uh, over the last uh, two years in across Europe, um, but but predominantly in the UK, which is where we are today. Um, so so I feel the sector is very very healthy. I think from an investment perspective, uh, it's 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 an it's a more difficult or less clear picture for for some investors. It's not as much, and it's it's not really as much to do with the sector as it is to do with the investors. So it's not as much of a slam dunk as it was in the past. Some investors have what what is widely referred to as the denominator effect, where by nature of some of these other asset classes moving around in value, their their weighting to the space has become disproportionately high, um, which which means that they've got to almost certainly not by not by dramatically amounts more uh, PBSA kit, which is kind of um, causing it to be a little bit of a complicated space or uh, time in the market. A lot of it is driven by the cost of uh, finance, of senior finance, and we've seen the, 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 that uh, that risk-free rate go up across Europe, and, the, and therefore the debt rate's gone up across Europe, which is have, which is definitely having an effect. Having an effect. I think the future, the forward curves on debt look like they're becoming uh, going down, certainly or at least stabilizing, which is giving people more confidence. So I think twenty twenty four will see more activity than twenty twenty three, and twenty twenty five I think I think more again. So from the investment side. So putting my um, my operator hat on, uh, it's it's never been better. Uh, putting my investor hat on, it's it's a com- more complicated picture at the moment than than uh, it was a few years ago. And um, I was talking to somebody on the podcast. The episode hasn't gone out yet, but um, about affordability and how 
Uh, obviously, we're on the, the journey to a million students, which is obviously what UCAS are talking about. And in terms of affordability, is PBSA going to be unaffordable for the majority of students in the future if the build costs and the rents keep keep increasing as they are? Uh, well, I'm going to take the... Um, first of all, I'm going to start by slightly rejecting the premise of your question, right? I think... Um, and uh, we'll talk about my sustainable and community building credentials and how, uh, how I have a high ethical bar. And I believe that students should be able to go to university and, and afford to have somewhere to live, right? So all, all that thing, take that as read. But the PBSA sector, I'm not convinced, has always been or has ever been the place that everybody could go and live in at university. When I was to go to university, I certainly couldn't afford an ensuite room. And, and I certainly couldn't afford to go to London to study. Uh, and that meant I, uh, again, I came from a, I didn't come from an affluent background at all. And I had to um, go to my local university. I did actually move into halls, but it was, um, it was very, very, very good value. And I certainly couldn't afford the ensuite ones. Um, and that was provided by the university. Now, the brand new purpose-built ensuite block would never have been on my radar because I could never have afforded it. So, so the, the, the reason I reject the premise of the question is because I, I don't know that purpose-built student accommodation is is I don't know that it's you know you don't expect Hilton hotels to have an affordable option in the basement right so I'm not sure exactly why PBSA is expected to now contributing by the way of section 106 agreements the affordable student housing ongoing negotiations in London maybe Liverpool who knows where else um I can see why local authorities are trying to get PBSA to help but the bare fact of the matter is if you're not going to charge 160 probably 170 pounds a week now it's unlikely you'll be able to afford to build it given construction costs where they are today and cost of finance where it is today. So, so you know, I would love government to intervene here to help help uh, developers, providers, or indeed universities provide more affordable accommodation. Um, but the uh, how that's financed has to be uh, has to be thought through in, in a big way. The infrastructure ones might be able to help, um, but it feels complicated uh, but i think that the, my my jumping off point here is is affordability the problem of the pbsa sector um people are trying to make it that i, I do question whether it really belongs there okay and um we've come on to the quick fire round questions now so if you could change one thing about the world what would it be uh probably <laughs> from speaking selfishly probably brexit Probably my biggest, uh, the biggest axe to grind. So, I'm, uh, yeah. So I'm, 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 I have a very firm view on that. And ha having spent six years of my life in Italy, um, which would be lost to all of our kids now, um, that would be my kind of selfish one. I think I'm, as I say, I'm reasonably politically active. The kind of rise of the right is a bit scary as well at the moment. That's going on. So I wouldn't classify myself as particularly left wing. I'm more of a centrist, but, um, but there's a few few things happening at the moment which i think are um i think people offering very simple solutions to to complex problems is has always been a danger and i think will continue to be so so anyway it's a bit outside the sector but there you go uh and what advice would you give to someone who wants to change direction but doesn't know where to start um well that's a, i mean that i've read a, a hundreds of or maybe well north of 100 books on personal development philosophy and they all say the same thing which is just start um, and I think that 
I think there's a lot to be said for that. And and some of the authors I've read a lot of are um, Stephen Covey in terms of getting, you know, the seven habits I'm sure you've, you've read or heard of. Uh, um, and that there's very much, that very much gives you methodologies to how to do something. So you read that book, you'll come up with some next steps invariably and think first things first is, 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 is what that would advise you. But philosophically, actually, there's a very, very um, pop culture American motivational speaker called Tony Robbins. And he would be exactly the same. He'd just say, just get on with it. Like as of tomorrow, just get on. I've, and I've got, and I've noticed this actually, I have a few friends who talk a lot about what they're going to do next and this amazing business they're going to start. Um, and I've got one friend who did get on and start a business uh, without telling anybody. And suddenly you wake up one day, he's got a business and he's doing it like, like you have Gareth and actually like I have now as well. Uh, I didn't do any talking about it. I just went off, got got all my account, told him to make a business, bought a website, got a logo, to, put a logo for $20 online. And I've just ordered a load of business cards for $50 um, and had them all designed using AI and all that stuff. So I just got on and, and did it, which is what I would do. I want to learn about Microsoft Excel, get a book and read it. I want to, you know, whatever it is, I, I want to be a, uh, over the pandemic, I, uh, you know, I applied and joined Rick. So I thought, you know, I'll, it would be great to be a chartered surveyor. I think I'm doing a lot of those things already. So I kind of went through the RICS process over the pandemic and thought I'm not going to sit in the pandemic and not move forward. So I've done RICS. I'm brushing up my Italian. So I'm, I've got a 1500 day streak on Duolingo. So I'm, I'm hammering that. I'm on, you know, got on my bike. So just, you've got to be, just do it is the, is the, the moral of the story here. Um, just starting something has a magic all in itself is something another famous writer's name escapes me says. Yeah, that's great advice. And yeah, um, that's what we were said. The student housing company, JFDI. And um, what's going to be your next big change? That's what I'm maybe thinking of starting to think about now. So, um, it you know, doing what I'm doing now has been great. Uh, I need to spend some time maybe thinking about what the next what the next big thing is. I've um, who knows? Who knows? But watch this space, Gareth. You're teasing the listeners there, I think, Brian. Uh, and uh, if you were to recommend a guest or more than one guest for me to speak to on the podcast in future, who would it be? Well, yes, yeah, and so, so, so many people I could think of, but um, I, I would always say John Kenny because I think he's a fascinating guy and a very deep thinker. Um, so, if you haven't had John Kenny already, um, he would be very high on my list because he, he has a, a way of seeing the world and through a lot of adversity in his early life as a young man um, that I think it's, it's, it's incredibly illuminating to hear from him. And uh, another guy I was thinking about was Kevin Redman, who is, um, is a person about my age, a bit younger than me actually, wouldn't thank him for this, who's had a really interesting journey um, over his career as a, as a recruiter in the space. Um, up until about a year ago, where he suffered, where he suffered from a stroke, and he's had some made that's a cause a major lifestyle reevaluation for Kevin. So I think I think John and Kevin would be would be really interesting think people to talk to. And the third one is is Chris Holloway, who is um, who I brought into the sector through a story he'll no doubt tell you, um, which also involved alcohol. Um, back in two thousand and twelve, when we uh, we bought a building randomly in Madrid. And Chris is a really interesting guy. He speaks multiple languages. He owns a bookshop. He he plays guitar. He he, he teaches kids amateur dramatics, and still manages to be right now the, the sort of global business development director for for GSA. So, so there there's some really interesting names, all of whom are, uh, I always find 
my time with fascinating great we'll uh, we'll definitely try and get some more episodes recorded with them um brian i just want to say thank you for uh for uh, spending your time with me today um as a pioneer in a sector i love which is student accommodation it's um it's fantastic to hear how some of those businesses that you know were uh, really forged the way in the sector were built and you part you played in and i actually really enjoyed listening to you talk about your early career in in holiday um in the holiday industry i think um what you learned there clearly sort of changed the way and and forged your path so um so yeah just thanks very much i really enjoyed it thanks very much gareth thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of know your shift i hope you found it really useful and you can take some practical advice away with you please do remember to hit that follow button as it really does help